This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Welcome to The Every Lawyer, a Canadian Bar Association podcast. I'm your host, Marlise Silver-Sweeney. It's the understatement of the year to say there's been a lot of health news in 2021. But something that's gone under the radar for some of us were important updates to Canada's Medical Assistance in Dying legislation, or MAID. I say some of us because the CBA's end-of-life working group has been working tirelessly on advocating for these changes brought through Bill C-7 this March. Today on The Every Lawyer, we'll discuss the CBA's influence on the implementation of Bill C-7. Our guest is Shelley Bierenbaum. She's a member of the CBA's end-of-life working group and a health lawyer with the Ontario Bar for over 25 years. She specializes in the legal and ethical aspects of assisted dying. Thanks so much for being here with us today, Shelley. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I understand the working group had some concerns with Bill C-7 in its original form, things like the exclusion of a mental illness from the definition of a serious and incurable illness, disease, or disability. Will you walk me and our guests through the major issues that the working group fought for? Sure. So just as context, in case you want to know, we've been meeting the end-of-life working group for about seven years, and our most recent work has been on Bill C-7. We were very concerned to see in this legislation, this legislation was put into force to deal with a court case called Truchon, and that court case said that your death did not have to be reasonably foreseeable to be eligible for medical assistance in dying. And that was the purpose of this legislation. However, as governments always do, they add things in. And what they did was exclude mental illness from being a condition that was eligible for MAID. And there was no reason to do that at this point in time. There was always meant to be a study of mental illness and how you best protect uh, an individual so that if they were suffering from a mental illness, they could still be eligible. But there was a an absolute prohibition in the legislation from this. So we were quite concerned about that. In our view, there's likely going to be constitutional challenges. And we argued that um, it was not appropriate. That's really interesting. So they added in, but it wasn't contemplated in the Trushan decision? It was not at all contemplated in the Trushan decision. It wasn't contemplated in the original Carter decision, which right. was the decision that allowed us to have assisted dying. They didn't deal specifically with mental illness, but there was no notion in there about exclusions for mental illness. It's been in the background and... Um, the assisted dying has been in legislation since approximately 2016, following upon the Carter decision. It's been there in the background. There's been some studies done, but it's premature to say it should be totally excluded. Most people that study the issue feel that you need to be sufficiently content that that person, it, it's, a, it's an ongoing wish that they are in, in deep suffering, that they have been able to look at all their alternatives. But the federal government introduced legislation that, nope, won't be considered uh, eligible. 
And that's really excluding a whole group of people that might wish to have assisted dying. I don't think there will be lots who would want to do that. So what they did, and one of our members, David Robert, appeared before a number of committees and we made submissions against the unconstitutionality of that. Federal government came back, there's going to be an expert panel struck and it's to look at the issue of mental illness over the next year and to report back in March of next year. And then within two years, that provision regarding total exclusion of mental illness is to be expunged, I hope. And there will be perhaps safeguards that have been developed in the meantime to assure and reassure people that we have a good way of protecting people who suffer from mental illness while allowing the autonomy to them of choosing an assisted death. Okay, well, thank you so much for your explanation of that issue. Um, I understand there were also a few others like advance requests for made and people under the age of majority. Will you talk to me about um, those issues and what the, the positions that the CBA took on those? Sure. There are two other issues in addition to mental illness, and you've got them right. They're advanced requests, and they're the issue of mature minors. In terms of advanced requests, I'm sure most people know of somebody who might be suffering from a cognitive illness such as dementia. And as we live with them and as we look at them, we might say, I want the ability under certain circumstances in advance to say that if I suffer from a certain illness and there are certain criteria where, for example, I don't recognize my family, I'm unable to take any care of myself, I would like the ability in advance to say that under those circumstances, I would like to have an assisted death. The problem that exists is that the current MAID scheme requires that you give consent right before the moment of death. Mm. So, and you have to be capable to give that consent. Right. So if I am, if I, Shelley Bierenbaum, am diagnosed with dementia, likely the criteria that I say under those circumstances, I don't want to continue living, I'm not going to be considered capable of making a decision at that time. Mm-hmm. So in, in our view, uh, in, and when I say our view in the end of life working group or the Canadian Bar Association that we're a committee of, we believe that there should be a schema that permits advance requests that pro- provide safeguards. You want to make sure that people aren't just, um, deciding when somebody should die. It is an individual decision and it should be a document. And that hasn't even been worked out, but a document or something that indicates under what circumstances. So this was not dealt with at all in Bill C-7. What Bill C-7 did would say on the issue of advance request and on the issue of mature minors that I'll get to, we will have um, a joint parliamentary committee comprised of senators, uh, members of the House of Commons, they will come with recommendations. And then we will hopefully doesn't commit to implementing the recommendations, but the recommendations will be made to government on that. So advance requests is not dealt with at all. There was good in Bill C-7 though. Um, And this is something that our end of life working group tried for a long time to say there was a 10 day, used to be a 10 day period between when you made your request for made and when you could have it. And there was always the danger that you would lose capacity in between. Right. 
there's now a mechanism where you can, in advance, if your death is reasonably foreseeable, say, should I lose capacity, I still want you to go ahead with assisted death. So that was that was a bit of a win, mm-hmm. and that was something good that came out of Bill C-7. It's only if your death is reasonably reasonably foreseeable. And it's complex because there were one series of safeguards in Bill C-7 if your death is reasonably foreseeable and one set of um, safeguards if your death is not reasonably foreseeable. In the latter case, that doesn't apply. But at least we've got precedent now to say we can see a situation where somebody in advance can say, even if I lose capacity, I still want you to go ahead. And I think that opens the door a bit to advance requests. It's my hope. Okay, Nobody right. That, but that's my hope. And we're looking at that. So the End of Life Working Group, they're looking at the issues of mental illness, advanced requests, and mature minors to make some further recommendations. But I think we feel comforted that there's at least some acknowledgement in C7 that you don't have to consent just before you die. Right. And even a mechanism, it sounds like now for putting that into place. Absolutely. Because right. it, you can imagine what happens is that somebody therefore has to take their life before they're ready to take their life. Mm-hmm. So if I fear that I'm going to lose capacity, I'm going to have to take my life before I lose capacity. So this is where advanced consent is. Advanced requests are really important. So that, that was a good thing. Okay. Thanks for explaining that so clearly. And then I I guess the last thing I wanted to talk about under that category of um, kind of major issues that the working group was um, thinking about was people under the age of majority or mature minors, as as you call them. What's going on uh, with that category of people? So again, this was not dealt with head on in uh, Bill C-7. It is still, it's part of the parliamentary uh, committee's job to look at that, senators and House of Commons members to look at that for recommendations in the next year or so. What that means is basically across Canada, and I'm generalizing, I'm an Ontario lawyer. So in Ontario, and it's pretty similar in most provinces, We don't determine capacity to make treatment decisions by age. We don't say in Ontario when you're 16, you can make the decision, treatment decisions. We look at, are you capable of understanding information about a treatment decision? And do you understand or what are the consequences of making a decision or not making a decision? So in our view, the same criteria should be applied to made. A mature minor means an individual who's not yet reached adulthood. Carter talked about adulthood. Mm-hmm. They didn't say uh, mature minors shouldn't be eligible, but they were dealing with the situation of an adult. We are going one step further. We're saying if you've got a younger person who is not considered an adult in Ontario, that would be 18, and they fully understand the information relevant to a made decision and understand that if you do choose made, you will not be here. That means that you will die, etc. That those people that understand those those I want to call them youth that can understand that should have the ability to choose made as a treatment decision. I think it would be very rare. Very rarely are children in a position of dying from an illness in their in their childhood. However, to preclude that group is to take away from them autonomy Mm -hmm. and to not allow them the full specter of choice. 
And and just so people understand, made is not just a small thing. I mean, there are a series of criteria that must be met, including intolerable suffering. Suffering, and it's a subjective test. Suffering that's intolerable to the individual. You know, they've been told about all the available treatments. They likely have tried, although it's not a requirement, they have tried everything. They must only have tried everything that they are willing to try. But I mean, and there's two assessors and it's seriously looked at. Um, there needs to be a witness to your your application for MAID. So it's not something taken lightly. But to say to a 17-year-old, just because you're not 18, you don't have the right to make that decision is arbitrary and in our view, very likely unconstitutional. Right. Okay. And so again, this wasn't, yeah. this wasn't in Bill C-7, but it is something that the working group is, is working toward. Correct. The only reference in Bill C-7 was that there is going to be this parliamentary committee struck and they are to look at those three issues, mental illness, under what circumstances you should be able to request made if you have mental illness, under what circumstances, uh, if you're a mature minor, and do we want to have a system of advance request. So it wasn't dealt with, but at least there was parliamentary committee struck to deal with it. Um, so that recommendations are going to come back to the government and we're hopeful that there will be progress on those issues. Okay. And what does the time frame look like that for that working or for that uh, legislative group? Do you know? Yes, I do. I believe that I'm just trying to think when they have to come back. They have to commence the review by April 1721, mm. I believe, and submit a report, including statements of any recommendations within a year. So that's within one month of, boy, we're past that. <laughs> it reminds me. So one of the tasks of the end of life working group is to keep on top of what the government has said it would do. And one of the items we're looking at, do we, you know, do we send correspondence? Do we write to the justice ministers and the ministers responsible for legislation saying, when has that been struck and who's on it? And we offer our help. So it means that should have been struck by now. That's one month after uh, Bill C-7 was, it came into force and they are to report back within a year. Okay. So, so this is all happening right now. This is very current. Should be happening right now. Yeah. Um, you mentioned just in your previous answer about the different impediments that somebody has to go through in order to access MAID. You mentioned something about two assessors. Um, yeah. That actually, it was a question that I had for you because I understand that those are some of the issues that the CBA is taking apart, um, taking on as well. Um, that The idea of needing two assessors or having practitioners to agree. Can you explain those a little bit to me? Sure, the sure. Around those issues? Well, what we took issue was, and this was in Bill C-7. So right now you have to have, it's physicians and nurse practitioners who can do these assessments right now. So you have to have two assessors who are either physicians and they're not related to each other who deem that you meet the criteria for assisted death. I don't think we've ever said two is too many. But what happened in Bill C-7 was they imported a notion that if one of the two assessors was not um, a specialist in the condition that the person asking for MAID is suffering from, that they had to be a specialist. Oh, and wow. we thought, you know, in remote communities, I mean, think of now where there's a global pandemic and it's very difficult to see any physician or specialist. For sure. This would be a big impediment. I mean, it could be a rare disease you're suffering from. It could be something you can't, I mean, 
it's not like you want to wait six months, eight months, 12 months to see a specialist. So we said that that was putting impediments in front of people before they could meet the criteria for assisted death. And the government listened. I mean, we are not the only one making some of these statements, but this mm-hmm. was a statement we made. And uh, Monsieur Robert, she put that before uh, the committee when he was speaking about the end of life working group committee recommendations. They changed it to say that if the physicians, if neither of the two assessors are specialists in that area, that one of the two must consult with a specialist and share that information. One of the two or the patient, the individual who wishes assisted death must consult with a specialist, but it allowed it to be that one of the assessors could, which is much easier. Um, And I think, I mean, I don't know that that's necessary. I would have trusted that physicians are duty bound Mm -hmm. not to render an opinion in areas that exceeds their scope of practice. However, at least it meant that a physician could contact a colleague specialist to do that rather than requiring that the individual have met with a particular specialist to do the assessment. So that was an impediment. And I'm hopeful that our advocacy on that uh, made the government think a little bit about what it meant for individuals and blocking access to MAID. Of course. Yeah. I'm just thinking about, I mean, I'm from Vancouver and I'm just thinking about the long lines it takes to see a specialist. And if you're you're trying to access that type of, you know, you're obviously not willing to wait those six, eight, 12 months. And and even just being really topical, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Anything unnecessary query. And I don't know the answer to that query of assisted death consultation, a consultation with a specialist would have been seen as one of those essential services um, that at least in Ontario right now, everything's being canceled. So Mm -hmm. even more so in today's climate, which has gone on for a long time, would it have created um, impediments? Right, of course. And what about the criteria that practitioners must agree? I don't think we've ever taken issue with, with that. As a pragmatic matter, nothing precludes you from going to a different physician or a different nurse practitioner if you get if you don't get the second person agreeing so there's nothing to preclude you from moving on so i think there's a safety mechanism built in i don't think it's a bad idea none of us take this lightly this this is death <laughs> and i think we have to take it really seriously so i don't think our committee has ever felt that that was inappropriate And I do, there is the safety mechanism that if I were to go to two physicians, the second physician did not agree, I could pick a different physician. I could probably go to two other physicians. What has happened? I mean, not everybody feels competent to do this. Mm. So let's say I just go to my family doctor and she's not up on this because those, those people who do assessments and they're It's not every physician that does it. There are forms to be filled out. There are statistics. There are reporting requirements. So not everybody does it. And if you go to somebody who isn't familiar, you may run the risk that they're just not familiar enough with the whole system to give you the response that you're looking for. So in in some ways, I think it's it's okay to have two assessors and um, we've never taken a position against that. Okay. Okay. Well, thanks for explaining that to me. So my next question is, what do lawyers who practice in these areas of health law and wills and estates, I imagine, what did they need to understand about uh, these issues as they're currently being 
uh, legislated and they're currently, you know, in practice? What did they need to understand for their legal practices? That's a really good question. Certainly health lawyers need to understand that there is assisted death. They will be consulted by hospitals. A health law lawyer deals with any person, group, association that deals with the delivery of health care. They will be asked for advice on medical assistance in dying. They will be asked to draft policies. They will be asked about changes in the law. So they need to be up on what's required to advise uh, any organizations they deal with. And I think we need to know it in order to be able to advise our clients. There may be somebody, so for example, uh, Truchon and Gladue, who were the plaintiffs in the Truchon case, as it's referred to, they had to seek counsel um, to challenge the impediments to them to have an assistive death. So I think it behooves all lawyers to understand that this, this scheme exists. I also think wills and estates lawyer and our end of life working group is drawn from many different sections of the CBA, including wills, estates, including alternate dispute resolution. There's health, there's um, child and youth services, etc. This impacts on everybody. We are all going to die. This is a topic that's of interest and touches upon every scope of practice. So somebody writing their will, it's important that they understand, or a lawyer that's doing a will for somebody, that they understand the circumstances of assisted death, et cetera, to see if there's any impact on a will. Um, I also, and this is, I'm going off script here, but what <laughs> I think it's really important to help people understand that they need to make their end of life wishes known. Right. And whether, whether assisted death becomes something we can do in advance, um, whether it's treatment decisions, as lawyers, we need to explore this with our clients. People are not comfortable speaking about death, but we need to be. We work mm -hmm. in areas of death. Think how much work goes into drafting a will and thinking how you're going to dispose of your property and all you have two witnesses and every page is signed. Well, I think the same kind of care needs to be taken as to what your wishes are for end of life and how you can affect those wishes. Many lawyers do powers of attorney and they name our substitute decision makers who will make decisions on our behalf. I, I think that I think that all counsel should be aware of this, whether you're litigation, whether you're estates, whether you're health law, child and youth services, if you're dealing with a mature minor, this is something that impacts everyone. Mm -hmm, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, what's the quote? The only things that are sure in life are death and taxes. Yes. Yeah. Um, going back actually towards wills and estates, this might be getting into the weeds a little bit, but you did mention that there's a new mechanism um, that has been brought on by Bill C-7 where people can, um, if they lose capacity within the 10 days of wanting to trigger MAID, they are, they're able to still go through with it. Uh, I was just wondering who is the person that can actually then, if the person loses capacity, if they can trigger um, MAID and how does that work and how might that work if we import it for the advanced, the advanced directives? Well, you've raised a fascinating question in terms of advanced requests that I don't think has yet been fully drilled down to. Who's going to trigger it and who's going to decide that you meet the criteria? In terms of what's in Bill C-7, to pull back for a second, it would have been that you've already got a date 
Mm -hmm. or a time for assisted death. So it wouldn't be that somebody would have to interpose and say, yes, she still wants it. I have not seen that in the legislation. It would be that you could continue on with the plan for assisted death, even if the person couldn't look at you and say, yes, I still consent. There's a safety mechanism even within that, so that if you, by words or gestures, indicate, even though you would be considered incapable, that you don't want this assisted death, that would trump it, okay? That would trump continuing on with assisted death. In the absence of that, so if somebody were to, whether it was by needle or whatever, really vociferously indicate they don't want it, you would have to stop. But barring that, my reading is that the healthcare practitioner could just go on and continue with the plans for the assisted death. Okay. In terms of advanced requests, and even the in our um, end of life working group, we are we broke down into three subgroups to see if we need to do some further um, work on advanced requests, mature minors, and mental illness. One of the things we will be looking at is who will trigger. Who will trigger it? If I shall say, under these circumstances, I would like to have an assisted death and I and I put it in a document, is it my substitute decision maker who will say, I think she's met the conditions? Is it a physician? Um, who, what kind of assessment will be need to be made to make sure that those conditions are being met? I think we need another system like we have currently for assisted death that would assess that, in fact, the criteria are clear that I've said that I've met those criteria. I'm not indicating through words or gestures or any other way I can communicate that I don't want this. So I think that's to be worked out. And I think that's a really, really good question. Okay. And is that fair to say that's something that the working group will consider in the future, depending on uh, what the legislative group reports back? Yes, we will be think we will be considering it. One of the things we do, though, is we focus more on uh, policy in a broader context mm-hmm. rather than drill down to the specifics. We aren't government. We will work with government when there's issues or Issue areas we think we can be useful in, we will make suggestions, but typically we haven't done the exact model. We've said this is what needs to be looked at. These are the types of considerations. It may be that we move the markers a little further because it can be helpful, but we're not the ones that are designing all of the systems. We're saying all of the things that need to be taken into consideration. And I think with advanced requests, you have to go a little further than we ordinarily might. Mm -hmm. But in general, we're working on policy directions. And do do you want to know how we put forward our policy? I'll wait for your questions. Actually, you know, that's so funny. That was my, you are anticipating my questions. My my next question for you was, um, as a working group, how do you decide where you land on the issues. Like, for example, the rights of minors to access maids is really a fraught issue. I've been doing lots of reading on it. Um, what does that conversation look like in your working group? Typically, we've broken down into smaller groups of the end-of-life working group to look at issue areas. And what we've done historically, we've gone to the Canadian Bar Association with five different resolutions on end-of-life and you draft a resolution, you work in a working group and you've got lawyers from different sections, from health, child youth services, estates, et cetera. We come to a policy position 
we check that policy position with our various sections because CBA is broken down into various sections based on the type of law you practice. Mm -hmm. We discuss it with the sections and then we bring it to an annual general meeting of all lawyers in the Canadian Bar Association that show up at the meeting. There's 36,000 lawyers, law students, et cetera, that are part of the CBA. They then vote on those resolutions. So our resolutions on mature minors, i.e. that they should be eligible to have made advanced requests, there should be advanced requests allowed, Um, mental illness, it should be not a category that's uh, excluded from made. These were all passed. And from what I can see is they were passed unanimously by the body that voted at the annual general meeting. Then that becomes a policy position for us. And because of that, we have appeared before the Senate. We've been invited to appear before the House of Commons, before committees that are considering the legislation. And we know behind us, we we have a fully approved policy position. We may push the markers a little further, but it all accords with what the policy positions are. So that's typically how you develop policy. And we take into account that really the CBA is focused on clarifying the law and pushing forward and making improvements in the administration of justice. So those are two overarching principles that we use. But once we've got these policy positions, we can then take them forward in writing submissions, appearances, letters. And if we they ever wanted us to sit on a committee, I'm sure we would as well. So it's really a reflection, these positions of the 36,000 members of the CBA. Yes. Yes. You say that the CBA has passed a resolution, that's for the whole group. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, you're a busy person and I don't want to take up too much of your time, but my last question for you is what work is left to do? You've been working on this, I I believe for, did you say seven years since before the first decision? Yeah. Where does the working group go from here? Well, I think we further develop the areas of advanced requests, mature minors, and mental illness. We just started. I mean, in some senses, it was a huge, huge event when assisted dying was something that the Supreme Court of Canada recognized that you you can't deny people the ability to do that. But the details and, and the progress on that goes slowly. So even though it looks like we've got everything we want, we don't. We don't have advanced requests. We still have mature minors who who can't have access to MAID. And mental illness, as of today, you can't have an assisted death. We need to continue to work. We need to continue to bring ideas forward. What I've noticed is that change can be slow. But after a few years, after people get comfortable with one concept, when assisted death started to become part of what's allowable, what's permissible, you move forward and there's lots more to do. Right. Okay. Well, a nice note, or not a nice note, but a note to end it on. The work is not done. There's still years and years of advocacy ahead on these issues. But thank and, you. And I, oh, I, I want to tell you one other thing. I, I think that most of the people working on this committee have found it very gratifying it because as we talked about that everybody is going to die and bumps up against death either in their practice or bumps up against it with family matter matters etc it feels good to really think through these issues and to allow people to choose the manner and when uh, 
they die and to do it in a manner that is as free from suffering as possible. So I think people have really, that sat on the working group, really enjoyed the work. So um, I would encourage anybody to sit on a CBA committee on issues that speak to them. Well, thank you so much. That is a nice note to end on. So thank you, Shelley, for explaining all these issues. Such important work on a critical issue. If you want to learn more, our website has many articles about the work being done by the CBA in this area. Tweet to us at CBA underscore news, or you can reach me at my handle at SS. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes and leave us a review. We also have a podcast in French called Juriste Planché. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode.